Welcome to the Draft Deeper Podcast. This is your host, Nathan Grubel. Joining me as always is my producer, Kevin Black. A special weekend recording of the Draft Deeper Podcast. We're recording this on Sunday, June 19th. We are a few days before the 2022 NBA Draft. Feels like it's taken us forever to get to this point in some capacities, but we're doing what we love, right? Especially here at No Ceilings, we've been covering the draft all year long. We love grading, evaluating prospects, talking about potential outcomes for prospects. And that means we're ranking players, but that also means if you're an absolute draft sicko like me, you're trying to put these prospects into tier categories. And I could not think of anybody better to help me break down my tiers, some of my final rankings that I've already gone over in podcast form. We'll do some big board comparisons, some ranking comparisons. And overall, I told Coach Adam Spinell from the Box of Wonders joining me today. I told him before we started this podcast, I want this to be a love letter. Our love letter to the 2022 NBA draft cycle, the process, everything that we've done, seen, even before the draft even happens, possibly, what are some lessons? What are some things we can take away? From this process so it's all about having different perspectives on the draft deeper podcast and i told coach this before we started recording i messaged it to him last night he's been one of my favorite people to do content with since i've gotten into the space and i can't i can't i can't wait i can't wait to do this podcast i think it's going to be one of the best podcasts i've ever done so coach fresh off of a wedding fresh off of everything else that life wants to throw at you how the hell are you doing my friend uh, Nathan, so good to be here. Thank you for setting the bar incredibly low for me to clear with the rest of this podcast. That's uh, it's very kind and generous of you as I shake off some of the cobwebs from about a week and a half away with a wedding and honeymoon. But we're only a few days away from the draft. It's it's time to sprint to the finish line. And I think as a lot of us are putting the finishing touches on our boards, on our preferences, going back through and, and you know crossing the T's and dotting the I's, for lack of a better term, it's a great opportunity for us to look back on the whole process and say, what have we learned? What do we know specifically about this class? And as I always like to do, try to figure out in what areas we are improving in terms of our scouting ability and what areas are still uh, lying ahead for us to polish up in the future. So as we get to the finish line here, I think you and I both share the philosophy. None of us are finished products, nor are we excellent scouts by any means we just go with the best kind of uh, feelings that we have at the time and today will be a little bit of that peek behind the curtain of what has really impacted us most during this draft cycle a freaking man coach amen i i am not perfect in doing this by any means i think you and i do it because we love the game we love to have fun and we love to continuously get better and you as a coach i mean i I can imagine this process helps you as a coach as well, because it helps you look at different things on film through a, a different lens. And I, I would imagine that that helps you kind of as your process as a coach, putting together game plans, drawing up plays, just seeing one thing and maybe being like, can I apply any of this to what I'm doing on the court? You kind of get that from some of your draft evaluations. Yeah, no doubt. And, and it helped me a lot as a college coach when I was evaluating talent on the fly, having to make snap decisions about guys. You know, there's still a recruiting element to what I do now at the high school level because it is a private school. But more than anything, I think it allows me to quickly watch filming, diagnose, um, you know, areas for specific individuals that they can work on. And that immediate feedback is really helpful for some of our players. So uh, no doubt about it, this is 
you know, something that we take away a lot of for just normal day life and, and what, uh, what I do for a living outside of the NBA draft. So we'll, we'll go big picture with this draft class. And then as we move towards more specific topics, we'll, we'll, we'll shove the content through the funnel, as I like to say, right? We'll funnel everything down. So let's start very general picture. I said this, this was really going to be a love letter for this draft class. Big picture takeaways. Was this class incredibly tough for you to evaluate as it was for me? Uh, you know, I, I think the challenges for me were trying to figure out the back half of the draft. I felt pretty secure from very early on in saying, okay, there are about 20 to 25 guys in this class who are talented enough to be first round picks. And once we got to that level, yeah, I was, I was good with those guys, feel very secure with the evals on them, but trying to wrap up those first 30 selections, right? There are 30 first round picks. I only have, I think I ended up with 22 or 23 first round grades. What do we do with the rest of those selections? Yeah. Who kind of goes in there priority wise. And that's where a lot of the philosophical stuff really started to click for me as we got later on in this process that, okay, this is going to be more about what do I value? What, uh, what type of swing do I want to take in the later part of the first round? So challenging in the sense that there is this massive glut of talent from about 24 to maybe 55 or 60 that I didn't have a great way of finding clear separation for, uh, you know, certainly ended up getting there at the end of the day, but it, it was a, a real struggle in that regard, just sifting through the depth of this class. So as I got down to really starting to hammer home my evaluations, figure out not only just where I wanted to rank the players that we've been talking about for months and months and months, the guys we know were going to be ranked, but who really deserves to have a, a draftable grade on them in terms of, am I actually going to rank them? Do I want to slot them into a tier? That conversation was a lot harder than last year. Last year, I had a board of like 100 some players that I ended up going through on this podcast feed. This year, I only created a board that I wanted to share in podcast form out to my top 60. Now, for those of you who aren't subscribed to the Box and One, first of all, holy cow, coach, you did an incredible job, not only breaking down your evaluations. First of all, we everybody knows you do the scouting reports. You do all the wonderful work on YouTube. But in written form, you crafted a board that goes all the way out to about 150 guys. And I'm sitting here like, how the hell did he do that? Because I, listen, I could share more of my board if I really wanted to. I got out to about 94 guys, coach, that I really wanted to break. So how, how, how much of a pain in the ass was it to go that deep in the process? Because the reason why I asked that is because even though I don't want to share more of my board, you published it and you did the work that a lot of NBA executives and scouts, like they literally have to craft boards that deep because they have to know about every single player out there it's not just who we want to talk about in a media landscape you did the work that everyone else is doing behind the scenes so how hard was it to do that this year yeah I think it's a it's always a challenge right like we try to attack this in, in everything that we do in the scouting realm from a front office perspective uh, first and foremost that includes going after a, a solid eval of the guys that are in your top 30 and all it takes is one guy for you to fall in love with that maybe the rest of the consensus hasn't to, if you can justify that and it ends up working out for you in the long run, then you're doing your job. That's what scouting is for unearthing guys that, you know, provide more value than maybe the current position uh, on their draft boards is showing. 
And that extends all the way to the, you know, the end of the draft. I look at the New Orleans Pelicans this last year with Jose Alvarado coming in and playing an important role for them as an undrafted free agent rookie and playing postseason minutes. I mean, that's a credit to their scouting department for not just identifying him talent wise, but doing their homework on him as a person. Like we're, we're a one man show. Like I can't go in and do the, uh, the in-depth character breakdowns and every single one of these guys, but I try to watch a little bit of film on everybody. So uh, everyone in our top 150, we watched at least one game on, um, which that was really the, the tiring part here is trying to figure out, okay, are we, are we catching a little bit of everybody here and making sure nobody slips through the cracks? But at the end of the day, I mean, when we're public facing here and you know, a lot of our scattering reports on YouTube are going to be, uh, about popularity, we try to focus a little bit more heavily on the top guys, but without ignoring those sleepers and trying to figure out, you know, hey, who has who a really good chance to be that unearthed gem this year? That's why it's awesome to have a written platform so that you can go dive deep. And, and Maxwell bound boards, as you, as you know him on social media for no ceilings, he is the draft sicko who loves to go incredibly deep. He will have an undrafted free agent right up after all this is over, I promise. So that will be coming on no ceilings. But For anybody who doesn't subscribe to Coach's written work over at the Box of One Substack, please, please go do so. I had a very enjoyable time reading through all of his words and kind of his final thoughts on this draft class as a whole. He did breakdowns for the vast majority of everybody who he ranked on the board. So please go check that out over on the Substack. Before we jump into my tears. And before I give my monologue about what the hell are my tears, how do I actually crack these? What am I looking for? Any, any big picture lessons from this draft class that you kind of want to get off your chest? You can go first. I can go first. I, I have like one lesson. I think that really I took away. You want to go first? Um, yeah. I, I think for me, as, as I've been looking at this class as a whole, there are a lot of one and done prospects who I had a tough time pegging. Um, and, and because of, eh, let me just start it this way. The lesson that I took away was that COVID has had really strange ramifications on the draft process as a whole. Yes. Because it takes away a, a, basically a year of data, at least for how these players were performing, what their general development cycle was going to be like. You know, we, we look at it too much of, oh, it's just a year of lost data, right? We don't have film from that year. We don't know how they, how they performed during that time. But it's a year of lost development, those reps in the gym that guys should have been getting that they might not have had access to. And it came for particularly this class at a really key moment in their development time, really junior going into senior year of high school. So what we found were maybe some errant rankings coming into college where the preconceptions of guys were built on their younger high school years and not necessarily who they were turning into. I think that's why a guy like Turquavion Smith from NC State surprised so many. He flew under the radar because the improvements that he made and and the area that he came from prevented him from being highly ranked coming into college. So what I really took away from this was to trust a lot more of the film that we're actually seeing but also not to kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? That a lot of these prospects are a little bit far behind the curve and that's okay. It shouldn't necessarily scare us away from seeing the upside that they have. But so many guys fall into that category, like a, a Peyton Watson, a JD Davison. Um, I mean, I'd, I'd even throw out, 
you know, Patrick Baldwin Jr. in that realm. Like so many one and done guys that are in this draft that just COVID plus them being behind the ball coming into a freshman season, they didn't show as well as a typical one and done prospect might. So uh, I struggled with those evaluations and trying. Oh, to- we're gonna we're gonna get to some of those names. Don't don't you worry, Coach. We're gonna get there. But I love that. I think I agree with that one hundred percent. Everybody runs a different race in life, right? Like we can't we can't expect all of these guys to come out of the gates and putting up twenty plus points per game, and they look like potential all stars. Like that's that's not everybody. The league needs guys who can come in and be role players, but the league also needs guys who are willing to kind of accept their flaws and what they need to work on and go back to school for another year or two and actually work on those things and show improvements. And and then they do end up raising their draft stock. Like we saw a number of sophomores were in a similar boat last year. Like some guys like Keegan Murray, I don't think a lot of people really thought that highly of. He was, well, like a late first guy by consensus, kind of like coming into the year. Johnny Davis wasn't even on people's like top 30s. Jay Ivey was a late first round guy last year who he probably had, would have had a late first round promise, but instead he came back to school, wanted to prove that, that he was in a different class. And now he's what, like the top four through six on everybody's boards, possibly even higher, like higher on your board, for example, coach, and he'll be another guy we talk about. And you mentioned Terquavion Smith. I bet he feels the same way as Jay Ivey. I bet he feels like he's going to go back to school and he's going to blow everybody away with the work that he's going to do in the offseason after getting some very valuable feedback, as I'm sure, from scouts, executives, other coaches, the whole nine yards. Yeah, he's he will definitely be the, the primetime offseason scouting video guy on YouTube. Everybody's going to want to put up there. How is how is Terquavion Smith going to be the next Jaden Ivey? I, I know that we'll definitely do some of that over in O'Seelings. But I think my lesson for this draft cycle it's something that I've kind of wanted to fight a little bit and go against the grain on just where this is going, but I can't, I can't fight it anymore. This, this notion that the NBA game is about as much size and skill and versatility and that intersection of all of those things, right? The biggest thing that I noticed about my board this year is I'm just, I'm not willing to put stock in smaller guards who I don't think can change the game at the highest of levels. And I was comfortable doing that two, three, four, five years ago. I'm not at that same comfort level anymore. If, if, if you're special at like anywhere between six foot to six, two or six, three, and you're special in multiple things that you can do on an NBA floor, I will go to bat for you. If you're not just given where the game is going in terms of positional size and how that's factored out across the entire floor. I can't go to bat for you in the same way that I once used to. I'm going to put value in these jumbo wings. I'm going to put value in these jumbo creators. I'm going to put value in these bigs who can be hyper-efficient and play certain roles like a Jalen Duran or a Mark Williams. I'm going to put more stock in all of these combo forwards, these bigger wings, and that's really my biggest takeaway. It, it shocked me that I had some of these guards as low as I do coach, but I don't know how you sort of feel about just that lesson, that takeaway, the, the positional landscape and where we're at the game. Yep. Totally agree. Um, you know, I guess this is the Kennedy Chandler portion of the podcast. But, you know, <laughs> Kennedy, Ty Ty, John Monterey, you throw all of them in the same boat. Okay. 
Yeah, I think you have to really buy into the the skill level in order to overcome a lot of that. And right now I'm not willing to do so. I had first round grades over the last couple of draft classes in Sharif Cooper and Trey Jones out of Duke and both undersized, really good game manager type of point guards going to struggle to see the floor at the NBA level, uh, trying to learn from the lessons of stuff like that. On, on the same kind of token positionally, one other lesson that I've kind of uh, dialed back on in the past, I used to believe that unless it's a complete game changer of a big man prospect, you either take those guys top seven or eight, or you don't touch them until the very last few picks of the first round, if not the second round. And I've kind of walked that back this year with guys like Duran and Mark Williams, because at some point you just need to get good players on your yes. roster, guys that you believe are going to be in the NBA, guys that can be in your rotation. That's more valuable at a certain point in the draft than taking a swing on just the next athletic toolsy wing who's a giant what if. So, um, you know, I, I think in the past, I was a little bit more steadfast to those rules. I've dialed it back and learned to be a little bit more situation by situation on evaluating big men in terms of where they fit proportionately to the rest of the class. And they're, they're going to come up in conversation in relation to my draft here. It's time to finally get to the meat and potatoes of this podcast, what we're here to do today. So, if you listen to the Draft Deeper podcast feed last year, you're going to be very familiar with how I did tiers, and I have basically the same system coming back for this year. And I, I, I think it's it's a good system in terms of what I like to see, how I like to project. So I have seven tiers that I use. I think today, I'm, because I only went out to about the top 60 on my board, we're only using six of those tiers, not the last tier. Tier seven I have would be like fringe NBA players. I think... I think a lot of these guys do have upside and, and shots to carve out some sort of role in the NBA, whether it's back end of the bench, all the way up to being potential all-star players. And I'll walk through some of that. So my system is, it doesn't matter what year it is. I use the same system year to year. And some people like coach and I'll ask him about how he tears out, how he rates his board. And he, I think coach, you do kind of like a, a year by year, like each year it can kind of be a little bit different in terms of the flow of how you rank guys, right? Yeah, a little bit. I think that there's there's two parts to that. One is trying to figure out how to maximize the 31st round selections. So a year ago, we had like 37 guys that ended up receiving first round grades for us. This year, we're same. I think I had the same number. Yep. Yeah. So it, when that changes, you have to adapt your tiers a little bit because, okay, once you get through kind of top four or five tiers, which tend to be, I think tier five is the last one that gives me a, a legitimate first round grade. Once I get beneath that, okay, now I have to differentiate tiers six and seven to figure out exactly what type of prospect I would prefer to pull into that late first round area. So that's where a little bit of my flexibility comes in with tiers. But similar to you, I, I think yours is a little bit more defined based on outcome or role within a roster, whereas mine is maybe a little bit more balanced on the idea of floor versus ceiling, right? Like there are um, a lot of tiers that I have that are similar to each other. Um, for example, tier, uh, tier five and tier six, very, very similar with me, but one of them is a little bit more of the upside swing and the other is a little bit more of a safe, dependable role player. Those tiers can be interchangeable for me based on whichever uh, franchise would be drafting. 
right? So yeah. based on your own risk assessment and risk profile, you can dip into tier six at pick 20. You can go to tier five if you have the ability to take more of an upside swing. So that's where the flexibility comes in for me. So let's remind the audience really quick of what exactly my tiers are. Then I'll get into some caveats and then we're going to start breaking some guys down. So tier one, if you're a tier one player to me, that means that I think you're a step above just being a potential all-star. I think you could be an MVP caliber player down the line. And, and my tiers, again, these are, these are upside based. These are not what I'm 100% predicting them to ultimately be throughout their careers. It's, I think if you try and do predictions-based things too much in the draft, you're going to burn yourself in the butt because we we don't know what the hell is going to happen ultimately. We're trying to project and, and factor in upside. Like And, Coach, I, I love because you've talked about that as well. you talked about, like, we're trying to use our imagination and our tools and our scouting ability to project what we, we think they can be, like, upside-based. And then we're not actually throwing out predictions based on, like, oh, we're going to the craps table and we're throwing this down and, and we think that's what they're going to be. Right. It's a little bit about ceiling. It's a little bit about risk and likelihood that the player is going to translate into how we're yeah. protecting them, right? Like I could see a world in which David Roddy scores 25 points a game in the NBA, but the likelihood of that happening is very, very, very low. So exactly. it, it's, it's really about um, identifying the floor and the optimal outcome, identifying the uh, likelihood that they end in either one of those two schemes, Yep. And for me, I always try to come at this from a, a franchise building, a team building perspective. If I had this player on my roster, how would I deploy them? What type of fits or um, system would I need to optimize their strengths? Or if it's a little bit more of a role player, do they fit in exactly how I would want to play basketball with a team that I would put on the floor? Beautifully said. So tier one, as I said, I'm... I think you have a chance to be an MVP caliber player. Like that was the, that was the type of grade I had on like Kate Cunningham, for example, last year. Like that's a very high bar to hit tier two. I think you got a shot at being a potential all-star down the line, potential one time or, or multi-time all-star tier three. I think you got a really good shot at being a starting caliber NBA player at some point in your career. Maybe not when you're walking into the league from day one, but at some point, I would project he was having a pretty good shot of being a starter. Tier four gets a little interesting. I group a number of people in, in my tier four category. So tier four is kind of like your, your fifth starter, right? Like the guy who we're shoehorning into the lineup, he doesn't project to have a monstrous role or a higher usage role or training that way role on offense. He's kind of like the, the last guy you're putting in the lineup or like your sixth man, like your first guy off the bench, you know, is going to play a lot of minutes for you. Could be starters, quality minutes. Or like your specialist kind of also gets shoehorned into like that fifth starter role, right? Like like Joe Harris, for example, is a shooting specialist. So we're really pegging him to have a high usage role on offense. Is he really going to be a difference maker on defense? Probably not. But that's the type of player I think would still qualify in this tier four grouping. Then tiers five and six are really your bench guys. Your tier five would be your seventh or your ninth man. And tier six would be your 10th or your 11th man. So now we're starting to project more towards the back end. Yeah, very similar there, especially with those top four. I mean, I put different types of labels or names on them, um, but very, very similar in terms of where they would slot within a typical rotation. I think tier five and six are very similar for me. Again, yep. I identify those differently of a higher upside swing in tier five, more of a role player, but still a guy with the first round grade or typically that we would say, okay, I can see him being a part of an NBA rotation pretty, uh, pretty reliably. 
And I, actually, I actually agree the same way. I think if I were to write out the subtext for both tiers and really go deeper into it, I think I'd probably classify that both of the same. Yep. And then seven and eight are very similar to me as well, right? You call them fringe NBA players. To me, it's, you know, tier seven are high variance guys. I can see them really turning into somebody that makes a rotation, a high risk, high reward, uh, but also somebody I can see potentially being out of the league in a couple of years. And then uh, <laughs> tier eight are those role players that I would have a, a you know, give a priority grade to snag in that second round. So once I get through about tier seven and eight, I'd like to end up around the 40th pick in the draft from there. Um, you know, it ends up being a lot more based on upside. So anywhere from 40 to 50 gets me through those top eight tiers. And then from there, it's just figuring out, you know, who's left. And this is why everybody in my audience, again, you need to go over to the box and one sub stack and read his breakdown of his certain tiers, because I think at Co coach Adam has multiple different tiers, but him and I both really end up at the same places with a lot of our big board grades. And there's, there's one caveat before we really get started to talk about some individual players here. The one caveat there, there'll be a few, but the really big one to hit at the top is just because I have you at a certain place on my big board does not mean that I'm going down my list and the tiers are going to fall the exact same way as my big board because the tiers are more about how I'm projecting how I'm projecting your role to be in the NBA and what kind of volume you can handle how efficient you can be it's not just where your ranking is like for example we're going to talk about some of these guys I may have a tier four a few tier four players ranked higher than some guys who I think could even be in a tier three because I'm valuing what they can do in their role. And I think they have a higher likelihood, a higher level outcome. There's less risk associated with how I'm projecting the role to be in the NBA. I would rather take a bet. And that's why I would have those guys ranked a little bit higher on my board. So we're going to go through some of these players and some of these examples. I just wanted to say that up front, my tiers are not directly in line with my big board ranking. So that's, that's a caveat. Any, any thoughts on that one? Yeah, that's just a little different than the way that I do it. I think my yep. tiers are in line with the overall rankings. The caveat that I throw out there is within a tier, the separation isn't linear, right? Yes. So if, if, if I have a tier of players ranked 15, 16, and 17 on my big board, which this year I do, the difference between the three of them isn't, okay, if Atlanta's on the clock at 16 and all three are still available, they have to take... AJ Griffin, who's the first player ranked on my board in that tier. Like, no, they have to make a decision between those three, who I would say, if no one else above them in my tiers is available, those are the best guys. They need to figure out which one fits best with their system. So within each tier, there's going to be a team by team fit that really separates them. I just kind of throw them in a, a ranking of if I were starting a team from scratch or ideally building out a roster, that's the order that I would prefer them in. Makes a lot. It makes a ton of sense to me. So here's where we'll start. This is, this is where the conversation gets spicy. This is where it gets really interesting. So I've done these tiers exercises for multiple years now. I also last off season, I went back and I sort of looked at previous draft classes and I evaluated what we know about those guys now and sort of where they would fall into my tiers. And if they did become starters, et cetera, et cetera. And I compared those to some of my previous rankings. Usually when we sit at this point in the year, when we've evaluated a draft class, I'll have anywhere from like 25 to, I think last year was the same number that you had as high as like 37 potential first round grades on these guys. Coach, 
in terms of where I sit comfortably, comfortably, I'm at about 25 guys. I have that counted out between tiers two through four. That's another point that I'll get ready to make in a second. I got about 25 guys. What's interesting to me is that those larger numbers that we throw out, right? Those numbers dwindle over time to how many of these guys actually find homes in those tiers later on in their NBA careers. For example, guys who I project in tiers one through three, that will generally come out to be anywhere between like 20 to 25-ish grades that I gave out for those three tiers. When I go back and look historically, the number of guys who would actually still be in those tiers as we've seen their careers play out, be about 10 to 15 guys from each draft class, right? So there's a significant subtraction from those numbers. What's interesting this year, tiers one through three, aka really two through two and three this year, I got 15 guys between those two tiers. That is, that's a drop-off coach. If we play out the same math as what usually happens historically when I do some of these rankings, that doesn't bode well for a lot of guys actually turning out to be starter caliber talents, at least by my projections this year in this draft class. Do you kind of feel the same way as as we've been evaluating that there might be a drop-off between starter and, and role player slash bench talent? I think so. I, I have a, a ledge in this draft class kind of after 14. Um, I think that there's a, a pretty secure top 14 that I would go to. I've got eight other guys that received first round grades. So 22 first round grades overall. That's a really small number. Um, really, really. We're, we're in the same boat pretty much. Really small numbers. Yeah. So I, I feel like the lottery level of talent in this class is maybe not as good as every other year, but, you know, it's not a huge drop off. Um, I, I really have grown to like the top four guys in this class in comparison to some of the, the top prospects in prior drafts. The, the challenge is once you get past 14, there are a couple upside swings. And, and again, I talked about that three person tier, which is tier five for me, just how I, I differently go about yeah. Um, I'm, I'm a little bit more selective with who I give those starter grades to uh, definitely starter upside to a lot of these yeah. guys, but I'm looking a little bit more at the dependable floor than the best case outcome. Um, so three different guys in that tier that I would go on in the middle part of the first round, and then it becomes a, a crapshoot. So, uh, that's, yeah, it's a strange year in that regard. Um, but I think last year, if I'm remembering correctly, and what was a special draft, I had seven players in tiers one and two. This year, I believe there are four. So a little bit of a drop off at the top, but that speaks more to last year than it does this year. And, and I, yeah, I want that to be very clear too, that, that just because that I might not be as high on this class overall in terms of those first three or four tiers, that doesn't mean that it's a bad draft. It just means that these last two years, I really think coach, we, we were spoiled. Like these last two drafts have been absolutely phenomenal, like outlier years. And I think this year we've returned, we've reined it back in a little bit more to where I would expect to call the quote unquote norm in terms of talent level for the whole, for the class as a whole, right? And that next year, who knows? Next year might be one of those outlier years. At least that's what everybody's saying. I have done zero work on the 2023 class other than the guys who we know are going to be coming back. Like, don't ask me about Keontae George or don't ask me for my full in-depth opponent, Victor Wembanyama. I'm not there yet, guys. Settle down. We still got to finish out 2022. But 
yeah, that, that's a great point that I think that you brought up that I wanted to echo as well, that that doesn't make this draft class bad. So I mentioned I didn't have any tier one players. I do not have anybody in this class who I see as an MVP caliber player. Now that doesn't mean that some of these guys near the top, I think they're going to be bad NBA players. I think that all three of Chet Holmgren, and Paolo Bencaro and Jabari Smith could be potential all-stars down the line. Now, I, I don't feel the same comfort level with any of those guys as I did Kate Cunningham and Jalen Green last year. I had both of those guys as tier one caliber players. The, the Jalen Green, I, before I get too many haters about the Jalen Green stuff, listen, he, he had a great second half to his rookie year. I still think the sky's the limit for that kid. Kate Cunningham, we all saw what Kate Cunningham could do. Even when we moved into the guys who I had tier two grades on, which would be Evan Mobley and Jalen Suggs, Mobley has turned out to be a special kind of tier two guy. Probably could have had an argument to be in tier one. Scotty Barnes, I had at like the very top of my tier three, knocking on the door of being teacher. He's, he's going to be a potential officer down the line as well. So that just speaks to what you said. The depth at the top of last year's class was just special. But based off of these classifications coach tier one MVP caliber tier two, not quite that high of a ceiling, but still can be an all-star down the line. Do you, would you have anybody out of these guys who you think I could have ranked in that tier one, or do you kind of see the, the ceiling for these guys in a similar way? Yeah. So I, I try to describe tier one as franchise changing alphas, not necessarily yeah. as MVP candidates. Uh, and this is something that I've adapted in watching Rudy Gobert in the Utah jazz, right? Okay. I don't think that he is going to ever win an MVP award, but he definitely changes the course of their entire franchise because he provides such an elite level of rim protection behind uh, on their defense. So I try to look at it more in the franchise changing. Is this the pillar that our organization can be built around? And I think there are two players in this class who, who check those boxes, Paolo Bancaro, more on the offensive end, and Chet Holmgren for what he brings on the defensive end. I got two guys just outside of that level, and those are the top two tiers. I think you and I agree on how we kind of differentiate, differentiate those two, but I would put two guys in there. I would put Jaden Ivey and Jabari Smith in those really, really good prospects, like top two options for a, a very good team if they pan out the way that we think they will. Um, but I have Jaden Ivey just a, a smidge ahead of Jabari Smith. That's where I was the seat. Well, you're brilliant podcast host, man. See, this is, this is how I know you, you do this all the time because that was an, an excellent segue because as I, I, I listed off the three names, Chet Holmgren, Paolo Bencaro, and Jabari Smith, you and I, I were in agreement that you, you, I think you and I have Paolo and Chet flip-flop ultimately on our boards, but we agree that those are the two best guys yep. in this draft class. You said at the very top of the podcast, you feel really good about your top four guys in this class. I did not have Jay Nivey in this grouping. I have him a tier lower in that starter tier, right? I think he's going to be a pretty damn good NBA player. I don't see Jay Nivey as having the same ceiling if everything breaks right than these guys. I have some more questions about Jay Nivey. I'm not, I'm not going to make this podcast about my scouting report on Jay Nivey. I've been, for everybody listening to this feed, I mean, I've, I've talked about all these guys in abundance. I want different opinions, right? I want your opinion as to why I should have Jay Nivey in a closer grouping with these guys than maybe separated from them. Yeah, um, he's a big guard. 
And as we talked about, smaller guards are the ones that are getting phased out of the league. Big guards who can handle and create their own shot are still very much uh, of importance in today's game. I think what Ivy has and does well are things you can't teach. And what I've seen in his growth from freshman year to sophomore year is enough polish, enough of the nuance where he is adapting to what is being taught to him that he can become a really good playmaker in the half court, somebody that you hand the keys of an offense to and really trust that he's going to be able to, to deliver with that. So the combination of those raw traits with the growth that he's shown this year, you know, 6'4 with a 6'9 wingspan, like all of the unteachables that he has as a guard make him really, really important to me as this can be a franchise-changing type of guard when introduced yeah. in the right system and built around. Um, I just, I also value guys who can create their own shot a little bit more than guys who are what I call play finishers, whether that's being just a catch and shoot guy or somebody who is dependent on a guard to get them the ball near the rim in order to finish it. They still have a ton of value and can change yeah. the direction of your franchise. But just in my preference, I think that the guys who create at an elite level for themselves and for others are the ones that you should be drafting for first. I know I'm throwing you a little bit of a curveball with this question we didn't talk about it in terms of conversation but you did say that we were going to go more of a philosophical direction with this podcast which in theory we are so if the draft stays the way that it is right the top three guys go to the top three teams no other picks are changing hands sacramento stays there at four if you're in charge of sacramento are you taking jimmy Nivey without without question yeah i am um i i do believe that at the point with the the point at which their roster is at right now, they just need best player available and can yes. figure a lot of it out later. Uh, I'm not overly concerned with fit. I think that if I felt more strongly about any of the guys just beneath this top tier that I would consider going with somebody else, but I think there's a pretty sizable drop off between these top four and whoever it is that I have number five on my board. I, I agree with you 100%. I echo the same sentiments. I think Going away from best player available and going by that philosophy is really when teams can get themselves in some hot water. Yeah. And regardless of the fit, I think whether you see Jay Nivey as your long-term guard mesh with everybody else, or he could potentially be one of the best assets to have possibly available moving forward. I think either way, franchises are going to value him higher than some of the other guys that remain on the board. And to my eyes, as well as your eyes, he's the best talent available. So just, yeah. just, just make it easy on yourselves, guys. Take, take the best guy. Now, the one thing that I will say, and it's hard to know exactly what these conversations are like, is that if everybody else has that perspective in a draft class, that Jaden Ivey is the clear-cut number four, then for the Sacramento Kings, they could get a King's ransom by moving back or, or going yes, out. they could. And, and this isn't as simple as, do we take Ivey at four or do we take someone else? There's option C, which is, do we go with a different type of deal that moves us back in the draft and adds us different type of assets that we believe are a equitable to what we would get out of Jaden Ivy and B help the fit with our franchise a little bit more. And without being in the war rooms to know exactly what those deals are going to look like, it's really speculation on our end to say if those would be better than drafting Jaden Ivy. But those are, that's an important conversation to bring up because those conversations are happening inside of front offices every single day. I think that's a, a big reason why my podcast with, with Dan Purcell for Pelicans executive was, yeah. was rated so highly. I got a lot of good feedback on that was because Dan wanted to go through some of those scenarios with me. He wanted to talk, not just do a lottery mock draft, but he also wanted to talk about 
well, these are trades that could actually happen on draft night. What, what do those trades look like? What are the mechanisms that go into that? How hard are these deals actually to pull off? Because there is so much that goes into these damn trade conversations. It's not even funny. But an interesting point that you could make with that is based on your evaluations, we you believe everybody feels the same way about Jane Ivey. An interesting wrinkle to throw into a conversation. If, if I'm working at a front office and I'm presenting not only my big board, but also my tier system, I have Jay Nivey in the same tier as a number of other prospects I have in the lottery. So to your point, if it becomes a conversation of, do we value Jay Nivey the same way in which we want to take him and bring him into our organization? Or are we looking from a team building standpoint? Do we want to trade back, grab a bunch of assets while still possibly picking up a player in a similar talent tier? to where we feel good about the guy we're bringing in and we're bringing, adding all of these different pieces to our team. Like I, based on how I present my board, I think that would be a conversation and a point that I could bring up a conversation. I still think you would, would bang the table and argue for let's, let's not even do it guys. Let's, let's take Jay Knight, which I, I think at the end of the day, I'd probably arrive at the same point. Yeah, again, it depends on what's necessarily going to be offered out there because if another yeah. team has Jay Knight number one on their board, and they make the decision to trade up to four and get him, we could get a lot in return if I'm Sacramento. So it's going to depend a lot on just what those offers are. I think what helps the Kings in the planning process is that the top three seem to be in some order pretty secure right now of Chet, Paolo, and Jabari. So without any of those interruptions taking place in the first three, like the Kings are essentially on the clock right now. And that allows them to shop around that pick and really figure out instead of just having maybe 20 or 30 minutes between a couple selections to piece together the best trade scenario, they can do this for weeks on end leading into the draft. So that covers the fourth pick that covers Jay Nye. That covers the guy who's at the top of this tier. It's everybody's saying the draft starts at four. So we start, we started off the 2022 NBA draft and our discussions already. Now it gets interesting filling out the rest of this tier. So the bulk of my tier three is the remainder of my lottery with a few exceptions towards the tail end of the lottery that we'll touch on in the next tier. But this tier, in terms of my big board rankings, goes from four all the way out as far as number 26 I have on my board. So let's let's run through some of the names. I got Jay Nivey, as we mentioned. I have Keegan Murray, Johnny Davis, Dyson Daniels, Shane Sharp, Benedict Matherin, Jeremy Sohan, Malachi Branham, and A.J. Griffin. Those are perfectly in order as they are on my board, 4 through 12. Then I have Usman Jang in this starter tier, who I have ranked at 15. I have Jalen Williams in this tier, who I have ranked at 17. I have Bryce McGowans in this tier. I, I, I got to ask you about Bryce McGowans in a second. but And then I have Dale and Terry in this tier as well, who is he's that back-end guy I mentioned. I have him ranked 26 on my board but I still have his upside in terms of how I'm grading his tier. I think he could be a starter level player in, in the NBA. So really we can have some conversations about some of those other guys in the lottery coach. I think it, the, our conversation gets more interesting with some of the names I brought up to are outside of where I have in my lottery right now. So let's start with Usman Jang. Okay. Fascinating player to talk about an enormous riser back up boards Later on in this year, it, it, his stock came to a point where we were watching some of these first half of the year games for the New Zealand Breakers. Like he was falling out of people's first rounds, myself included. I didn't even know if he was actually going to like be in the draft. Like it was going so bad for his stock. Like that was an honest question to ask myself in evaluating. Then 
The second half of the year happens. He looks much more comfortable on the offensive side of the ball. He's nailing open jumpers. He's making plays out of the pick and roll. He's bringing impact and value defensively as to what his body will allow him to do on that end of the floor. And the evaluation becomes a lot more clear in that. Are we really going to let the six foot 10 wing who can handle initiate and shoot fall this far away from the lottery? And the answer to that question ended up being no, because now he's back in the first round conversation, but also really supremely in the lottery conversation. And you hear buzz for him up as high as like seven to the Portland Trailblazers. Like what if Portland just completely threw the draft on its head and took somebody like him at seven. We have him in a very similar spot on our board. I have him at 15. You have him at 17. What's kind of been your evaluation and your thoughts on Jang's rise, his fall, and then his rise again? Where are you kind of at on him as a prospect? Sure. So I try to operate with the philosophy that everything is a data point. And um, through the down stretches, there were a lot of games when he just did not look like an NBA caliber player did not want physicality, still really raw in terms of his skill package. You see the flashes of upside with his size, his handling, and, and just how fluidly he moves. But um, a great rebound and finish to the season, which restored a lot of that upside that you can believe in him. So uh, I'll just give, I think, the best way to talk about Jang is to really outline my tiers real real briefly. I'll be very, yes. very quick with this, Nathan. No, 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 no. We, we are, listen, we are here for as long as we need to be on this podcast. This is our love letter, remember? This is, this is, well, I, uh, I tend to be a little verbose when it comes to love. So I'll, I'll check myself a little bit, but uh, there's a, a general philosophy out there. And I, I stole this from John Hollinger over at The Athletic a couple of years ago that only about 20 to 24 guys from each draft class end up hitting and staying in signing second contracts in the league. So if you're having that in mind, really the top 20 is what I would say are very safely like first round grades or my guys. So tiers one through three, which are franchise changers, guys that are just outside of that. And then what I call good third options for a team. Those are guys that typically fall within the top eight to 10. Um, after that, there's a, a tier four that I call the safe high value role players or fifth starters, very similar to how you define your tier four. I'm just a little bit more selective with who really goes into that. And then as we get into tiers five and six, those are the guys that round out the first round for me. Um, tier five are what I call high upside swings with considerable downside. There is a very real possibility that these guys turn into a tier three type of fringe all-star, a good third option on an NBA team. But there's enough downside and risk in my mind that I could not put them in tier three. I just, I'm not quite there yet. And Usman Jang fits that to a T because yeah, do I see the upside as a guy who's a really fluid ball handler, tremendous on-ball defender against kind of ones, twos, and threes. Like I think of him defensively like a Nick Batum was thinking back to his days with the oh, that's a Blazers, like when, when they had young Damian Lillard and yep. they would cross match Nick Batum to hound opposing point guards. I think he was great against Chris Paul in, uh, in his days with the Clippers, like having a, a point guard defender like that being six foot 10 with long arms is incredibly valuable, but I don't know about the scalability of Jang's game to being a role player where I think there's a lot of boomer bust to him. Um, Two-year sample playing in France and now in Australia, he's shot 27% from three. Got a lot better as the end of the season went on, but again, everything is a data point. We can't dismiss the old stuff 
just because he finished on a high note. I think that that Great would be point. way too small of a sample size. So while I love the upside swing and saying I like his mechanics, I think that he's comfortable and shows flashes with the ball in his hands, he has to be able to do it efficiently and he has to be able to do it against physical defenders. And those are the two areas and question marks that I have right now about Jen, where again, I see the upside, but I'm just a little bit more cognizant of the downside to the point where I don't think I would select him in the lottery. So on a similar track, yeah, you knew where this podcast was going because we had some conversations about Mr. Bryce McGowan's. Yep. You have him now at 23 on your board. I have him at 20. So we're in a much similar place than I think we probably once were. Talk to me about your swing on, I know I'm jumping around a little bit because I do want to talk about Jalen Williams too, but talk to me about your evaluation of Bryce McGowan's and and what what has kind of rocketed him back up in your eyes, more closer to that you think he could possibly be a starter in the league than being closer to a much more negative outcome. Sure. So we talked about the tiers of once we get outside the lottery, we're in tier five for me, those high upside swings. I only have three players in that tier right now. They're at 15, 16, and 17 on my board. I also mentioned that there are only 22 guys that receive first round grades. That means tier six for me. The role players that I believe are first round talents are players 18, 19, 20, 21, and 22. Once I got outside of that and I said, okay, Nobody else outside of these 22 do I feel incredibly firmly confident in to say I would give them a four-year contract without any type of hesitation. Once we got outside of that, I tend to go on the upside swing. I tend to value, okay, I got four years in a guy. I'm going to invest in somebody that I think can really deliver if we're going to develop them over that period of time. And Bryce McGowan's is first in line on that list, which is why he falls 23rd on my board. Um, you see the upside of having a six foot seven kind of combo guard scorer who plays and creates with the ball in his hands, does have three level potential. And what I like most about McGowan's is how fearless he is as a driver, the skinny frame and body, but he gets to the free throw line a ton. That maybe that's the coach in me, but I just love guys who, when the game's on the line, things slow down, they're going to be crafty enough and, and yep. fearless enough to just go and, and generate two free throws, get an opposing defender in foul trouble. There's a lot to work on still with the shot. There's a lot to work on on the defensive end of the floor. And, and I think Fred Hoiberg did him very uh, few favors in preparing him for NBA caliber defense, but I'm willing to excuse some of the passing reads or lack of assist numbers just based on the system that he played in the Nebraska. So, um, I, you know, I've come around on the gallons and saying, He's the next best gamble to make outside of those first round grades that I have, but where this class stacks up, that's still a top 30 type of prospect. Is there, is there one thing that if he would have just shown a little bit more of one thing, he might've propped himself into those 22 guys that you mentioned and made himself that 23rd guy? Pull up shooting range to three. Uh, That's something that I always look for uh, for lead ball handlers because there are really two main ways to defend a ball handler in the high pick and roll, either go over the top of it or underneath it. And if somebody's not a very good shooter, you're going to go underneath it, dare him to shoot, and that becomes a mental game. So realistically, if you're going to be a lead ball handler in a playoff series, you have to be able to shoot 34, 35, 36% from three on your pull-up jumpers that translates to, from three-point range, about one point per possession if you're above 33%. And I didn't feel comfortable enough with 
how low McGowan's form was and just the, the number of makes that he had when teams would go under against him of saying, yeah, he's a definitive first round grade for me. But uh, again, if he adds that to his game and that's not the hardest thing in the world to add, then I think he gets to that level. So Jalen Williams, it's, it's, it's really funny. You and I kind of have Jang and, and Williams flip-flop yeah. on our boards, but similar story. It's, it's a guy who wasn't anywhere close to being that high on my board in my mind like three months ago. And then the more we get to talking to other people to kind of give us the little voice in our ears, like, hey, you should really pay attention to this guy to actually having the time to break down more of the film the more in-depth level because he's not playing all of this high major basketball and really the biggest games you're talking about were against Gonzaga and then some of the advertised games against San Francisco. He might've caught a few of those games during the college season. But other than that, a lot, a lot of our emphasis, and I mean, I'm over on the East coast, you're over in the East coast. That's, that's really where a lot of our attention's going. We miss some things over on the West coast. And admittedly, I've, we, we've even seen some reporters kind of give some, some little tidbits and quotes from some anonymous scouts I've talked to. And some of them have admitted the same thing. Like he's a guy we, we didn't pay enough attention to him during the year, as much attention as we should have. Now we have time to go back, look at the film and we're learning from our lessons and we're propping him up our boards. We're talking to him. We're seeing him at the combine. He not only did he look like he belonged at the combine, he tore it up yeah. at the combine. Now it's to the point where I think he is virtually a top 20 lock barring any other surprises what, what, what's something that you can take away from your evaluation on Jalen Williams this year? Why do you have him ranked the way that you do? And what do you see his upside being in the NBA? Yeah, it's, um, I think for me, I'll just go over Williams a little bit as a prospect. Um, I, I've coined this term that I use a little bit more in scouting, a three-level scorer with three-level pace. And, you know, when you watch Jaden Ivey play basketball, super, super fast, or super slow and playing and operating out of hostage dribbles and snaking the pick and roll, but doesn't have that in-between speed. Jalen Williams has that in-between speed and feel. He knows when to accelerate. He knows when to be crafty and when to slow down, but he has the quick twitch ability to turn on the, the burners a little bit more, go from slow to fast, from fast to slow, play in that mid-range area and just eat up space. Uh, I was a soccer player in high school, and I remember coaches always saying to me, hey, Adam, go ahead and take the space, right? Like if you take the space, defenders will come to you and that'll open up something for somebody else. I think that pick and roll ball handlers need to do the same thing in the mid-range area. Go where the defense isn't, force somebody to be able to guard you there because you can knock down the shot wherever it is that you head to and that will create the optimal outcome for your team. And Williams is excellent at doing that. He just reads the play, reads the feel really, really well. Uh, so three level potential with the ball in his hands, which by the yep. way, doesn't hurt when you have a seven foot wingspan to be able to create and get to the rim for any of that. Yeah. It's like seven too. Holy smokes. Yeah. He's, he's really, really long. He's bouncy in the right ways, but he's got craft to finish with both hands underneath the rim. Very underrated passer. I love how he uses his offhand as a passer. That's something that just catches my eyes really hard to teach somebody to do that. The fact that he has that feel uh, opens up a lot of different ways that you can deploy him. You know, I think from a playbook perspective, and it even happens in the NBA, you can be one-sided in terms of which part of the floor you're attacking from, right? If you're not very good with your left hand, NBA coaches are going to find ways to get you pick and roll reps for you coming off to your right. Williams doesn't need that. So I, I really value that in terms of a second side creator. And then he rose up my board because I felt very comfortable with where the floor was. Um, I could see the upside, yes. definitely see all of those things, but 
shot 40% on catch and shoots from three, which is kind of my litmus test for, hey, even if this guy doesn't turn into that top two option, can he find out a, if he has a role in the NBA by being a spot-up shooter? I think the answer is yes for Williams. And when you're that toolsy, athletic, and long, you can find ways to be impactful defensively. So uh, a really good floor that I could depend on, which uh, ended up uh, you know, boosting him up my board quite a bit. But at the end of the process, I did fall in love with the playmaking ability uh, combined with some of his scoring to say, this is a lottery tier talent. You gave and you gave exactly the answer that I wanted to with Williams to highlight a point between the difference of tier three for me versus tier four. When we talk about if I'm putting you in tier three, that means that because I think you have starters level upside of the NBA, that means that I'm not just putting you in like a specialist category, at least in the offensive end. I, I think you can do more than one thing on the floor offensively in the NBA. It's one thing if you are just a shooter, you're on the floor for that purpose. I would put you more in that tier four category versus tier three. Jalen Williams is not only just a catch and shoot guy, as you talked about, everything with his pick and roll game, his driving ability, his passing ability. There are multiple different things that he can contribute towards on the offensive end on top of the physical package that you outlined. So that's why he would fall in a tier three category for me more so than a tier four. That's how he propelled himself in, in my eyes. We see that in a very similar way. The last guy I have in this tier three category who is, God, coach, I was on the fence with this one. Me ranking in my tiers and how I do it, tier three versus tier four, because I think Dalen Terry, and you have him at 20, so I'll be curious to get your evaluation. He is one of your 22 guys in in that projection-based system of yours. There are things that I think he can do on an NBA floor, but I don't know if I've seen enough and if I have enough evidence that he's going to do those multiple things immediately in the NBA. I think a lot of that comes back to his shooting. And I think it comes back to his usage rate on, on offense. Like he, he, he was a low mistake player in Arizona because he was a lower usage guard on the perimeter in Arizona. We, he showed some passing crafts some passing creativity. If the shot's going in, it sets up a lot of other parts to his game. But if the shot's not going in, and he's not impacting the game and using that to get to everything else he can do from a scoring standpoint on an NBA floor, could he become one of these guys that even though he's six foot seven, even though he has length, even though he has the potential to guard one through three, is he one of these guys who could possibly be played off the floor in high leverage situations? And that's why he's a 26 on my board. Still inside the first round. I still like him and I'm still acknowledging the tier three upside, but that that's more of why he was on the bubble for me between tiers and that's why he's one of these guys where I keep battling with myself and going back and forth between them. What, what have you seen from Terry? What, what would be some of your thoughts about what I've said? Yeah. So with Terry, I mean, there are swing skills that are there um, that he, he needs to get better at, which is the consistency of his three-point shot yeah. and how he finishes near the basket. A tremendous passer, but I think passing is rendered a little bit less meaningful when you're not a... Uh, a reliable threat to score the basketball yourself. Like why, why are help defenders scrambling to you if you're not separating from your man or a threat to score at one-on-one? So Terry has a lot way to go with the the ball in his hands at being a dependable scorer in that regard. Um, I love him defensively. I watched back. I, I mean, I've watched a ton of Arizona film this year, right? 
uh, diving into all the prospects that they have, the Benedict Matherins, the Christian Colocos of the world. Terry, to me, was their best defender um, and more impactful in their scheme than even a guy like Coloco was. So uh, I came away incredibly impressed with what he provides on that end of the floor to the point where I think that he can be a defensive energy role player. And a lot of this is based on the intel that I have around who Dalen Terry is and why I think that he's a first-round grade. Embraces that type of role. Yeah. Very low-maintenance type of person, human being, energy provider. Like, just going to stick inside of a locker room because he's willing to do whatever it takes to make his way onto the floor. That's valuable to me in a role player and a guy that I would be willing to give a first-round contract to. Now, I'll give you a peek behind the curtain here, Nathan. And, and There uh, we go. Uh, we've got a piece coming out on draft day called 22 Bold Predictions for the Class of 2022. And one of them includes Dalen Terry, which says that he will have a 10-year career and will never average 10 points a game. It's just the type of role and, and who he is. Like He's going to find ways to be part of a roster, play 16 to 24 minutes a night. Uh, I'm not huge on player comps, but like there's a little bit of Tomas Sadoransky to him of like I can see that yeah like really good passer versatile piece in the backcourt but he's not looking for his own he can score in enough ways that you know people respect him enough but uh, there's value to having somebody like that on your roster and when you combine that with the energy the defense the intangibles that he brings to the table I think he's a first round guy but with you I, I think the idea of Dalen Terry is a little bit overblown in comparison to what Terry has produced at this point, because the shooting is still very, very new. The pressure on the rim and how he scores at the half court isn't quite there. Um, but I, I do buy into enough of the other tools and the intangibles to give him a first round grade. So we're going to run through tier four. I have some stops that I want to make along the way in this tier, and then I will run through tiers five and six. But coach knows I'm going to have some damn questions about the back end of his board. He knows it's coming. So that's where I want to spend a lot of the cool tier five and tier six conversation. So tier four, I'll run through the names. So at the very top of this tier, I have, as I mentioned, the last two guys in my lottery who I have in a tier four versus tier three. I have Jalen Duran and Mark Williams at the top of this tier. Then I have Jane Hardy. I have Tara Eusen, Ochai Abaji, EJ Liddell, Ty Ty Washington, Blake Wesley, Patrick Baldwin, Max Christie, Kennedy Chandler, Jake LaRavia, Justin Lewis, Gabriel Pochita, and Andrew Nemhard is the last guy in this tier, which this is another one. Just because I have him in a tier, that doesn't mean that the big board ranking is to follow. I have Andrew Nemhard at the back end of my board. I'll, I'll get to him last. In this he, he's a good, good prospect to have a conversation about. But I want to start with the bigs, okay. Dern and Mark Williams. Something that you said earlier speaks to why I have them in, in this tier versus tier three, yet I still have them ranked where I do on my big board ahead of a number of guys I have in tier three. I'm not projecting them to be these incredibly – awesome multifaceted offensive players but I know the type of role that they're going to come in and play they're going to be play finishers and they're going to do that at a very high level on top of everything they offer on the defensive side of the ball they're perfect examples of who I would peg more as fifth starters like the guys who you have last in and you're kind of building the other pieces out you know not 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 around them because you get what I'm saying but though that's why I have them in a tier four versus a tier three based on my classifications and my tier system coach 
do you think I should have had them as tier three guys with some of those other names? Do you think that because of the argument I just made, I'm, I'm sort of right to be where I sit on it? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's all about perspective and, and kind of what you prefer, right? So for me, I have them both as, you know, starter level guys. I have Mark Williams 12th on my board and Jalen Duran 10th. So again, it's not like they're too far away in terms of the overall order of this, but we just approach tiers slightly differently. So uh, I'm not one to tell you how to, how to run your own business there. I think what's fascinating for me is thinking about these guys neck and neck, right? And what I've continued to go back to is we have a, a lack of patience throughout a lot of the scouting process, <laughs> right? Like Jalen yeah. Duran is essentially two years younger or two years behind developmentally of where Mark Williams is right now. And I see a lot of people starting to put Williams ahead of Duran on the draft boards because, man, he's such a good rim protector. He catches all these lobs. He's the actualized version of what Jalen Duran could be. I think what Duran does as an 18-year-old is far more impressive than what Mark Williams could have done two years ago. So in terms of thinking about the difference between the two, yes. I, just, I have Duran slightly higher, and I don't think I could defend putting Mark Williams ahead of him. But as we mentioned, there comes a point in a draft when talent is talent and you just need guys that are going to be part of your rotation that you're going for in drafting. I think we're both in agreement that with the overall depth of where this class is at in comparison to others, that point with two bigs as talented as Duran and Williams are is in the later part of the lottery. And you and I are in full agreement in terms of where we have them slotted uh, on our personal big boards in that regard, where we are at disagreements with where we have them slotted on our big boards by tier. I have both of these guys in tier four, but I have them outside of my lottery and Jane Hardy and Ty Ty Washington. You have them inside the lottery. This is this. I feel like this has to be part of your personal love letter to this 2022 NBA draft class. Not that I want to have a, a, an argument with you. This is more so the part of the podcast where I want to give you one more soapbox opportunity on my podcast platform to make your cases for both of these guys. I know they're, they're different. There's differences in terms of where you have them ranked in the lottery. One's higher, one's lower, but to really defend these guys, because they are guards who fall in part of that conversation that we had at the very top of the podcast for me, where I don't know from my perspective, if they're doing things that really scream to me, all right, these guys are going to be long-term starters in the NBA I think they're, they're going to be good NBA players. I think they're going to play, you know, a decent chunks of minutes for their respective teams. But I don't know if I'm like going to the craps table, like I said, and putting money, he's going to be like long-term stars in the NBA. Get up on your soapbox, coach. Last stand arguments for Jaden Hardy and Ty Ty Washington as lottery level guards. All right, let's start with Jaden Hardy then. A guy I have sixth on my yes. overall big board. Six foot four with a six nine wingspan. So definitely not a smaller guard. Um, one of the better catch and shoot prospects in this draft based on what he displayed with the G League Ignite. So I think that raises his ceiling just a little bit, or excuse me, raises his floor of being somebody that can be uh, a dependable player of a rotation eventually. But what raises his ceiling is how hard it is, and, and for some reason, this is something we overlook continually in the mainstreams, how hard it is to be an 18-year-old playing in a professional league, being the number one option on a pro team's uh, offensive, offensive system. Um, and he did it gracefully. 
I think that there were a lot that, of things that he learned as the season went on about how to operate within a pick and roll scheme, how to really get to his spots without being a top shelf athlete. But the, the spacing at the G League Ignite was not ideal for somebody like him to operate with the ball in his hands. Dyson Daniels, sub 30% from three. Michael Foster, sub 30% from three. Scoot Henderson, Marjan Bochamp, sub 30% from three. Any type of ball handling guy who's not an elite athlete and finds the floor cramped as he did, I think it's going to take away a lot of those passing reads and or the ability to get to the rim and finish. So I'm looking at the context of those situations and thinking I can understand why he didn't perform well in those areas, the G League Ignite. I combine that with the fact that he got so much better as the season went on over his final eight games, Hardy averaged 22 and a half points, five boards, four assists with fewer than three turnovers, shot 42% from the field and 38% from three all on high volume. Again, we're talking about a teenager in a pro league who finished the season with 22, five and four on shooting 38% from three. To me, what you draft for are offensive game changers. Every postseason series comes down to having enough guys on the floor that can create their own shot without sacrificing off ball spacing. Hardy checks those boxes to me. Are there some things that I would love to change about his defensive aptitude, about shot selection at certain points in time? Absolutely but I would rather teach those and have somebody that I know can put the ball in the basket at a dependable level yeah. than take a risk on somebody else. So I'm really, really high on Hardy and just, he's the one guy in this class I'm willing to buy into. Ty Ty, let's go. Interesting to conversation about Ty Ty. Really interesting conversation. Again, six foot three. So that is by some definitions, a little bit smaller of a guard, six foot nine wingspan. I think that the length really helps him. There's nothing that I see in his offensive game that would be a weakness at the next level. Yeah. Uh, he shoots it. He creates his own in the mid-range, the most efficient mid-range scorer in this year's draft class, both in terms of pull-ups and very, very good on his runners. The, the off-ball opportunity, again, raises the floor of a backcourt guy that if you're able to play off-ball, knock down catch-and-shoot shots and be a movement shooter, as I think Ty Ty is pretty good at, that just gives you a whole different set of ways to really carve out a career for yourself. But what is underrated about Washington is how he was utilized at Kentucky is not the ideal prospect that he is. Again, my love for Hardy in Washington is going back, looking at the film and saying, man, there, there's so many different ways that he can impact the game that are just not being utilized. That's the coach coming out of you. With the <laughs> there it is. And, and John Calipari has a history of siphoning his backcourt players into two separate roles. One is a lead ball handler. One is more of that shooter who comes around screens. If we didn't learn from Jamal Murray, from Devin Booker, from Emmanuel Quickly a couple of years ago, that these guys that are siphoned into that shooting role at Kentucky are much better with the ball in their hands than they ever got the opportunity to show, then you know, what is it that we're really looking back at prior drafts for? That's the Kentucky effect that I always try to take, take heed of. And this year, they had a pick-and-roll pairing in Severe Wheeler and Oscar Shibway, neither of which could shoot, which means that Ty Ty, good enough player to be on the floor at all times, needs to be spacing the floor. In the games that Severe Wheeler was absent, I mean, Washington was averaging seven or eight assists a game. He's a fantastic passer. I don't think that there's something on the offensive end that he doesn't do well. And I'm willing to bet on those guys sticking in the league for a really long period of time. 
very good with the ball in his hands, underrated as many other Kentucky guys have been over the last few years. Very good off ball movement shooter, like really good spot up threat. Um, but I get to the point in the later part of the lottery or in the middle part of the first round where I say, okay, if I'm betting on a guy to carve out a 10 year career, cause he just does everything well, where is the spot that I need to put him? And this year for Washington, that was 14. Washington's going to make me look stupid, isn't he? Washington's going to be that, that, that other Kentucky guard. Like I famously had Tyrese Maxey in the early twenties. Well, what's he done? Just absolutely prove the bejesus wrong out of me. That time Washington could be the next guy, but the so same Kentucky guard. Yep, you, had, you had Maxey in the twenties. Yeah, I was not over. I think I had him like 16 or 17. Like I wasn't overly high on Maxey, but Kentucky guards are continuously much better in an NBA scheme than what they show with the Wildcats. And at this point, I'm willing to bank on a guy like Ty Ty because all of the intangibles are there for him as well. So we're going to talk about one more guy in this tier four. And then what I will do is I will run through the names in my tier fives and tier six. And then we will just talk about some back-end guys on coaches board that I have some questions about. That's how we'll wrap up the podcast. Do it. So this last guy in tier four, as I mentioned, he's ranked 60th on my board, Andrew Nemhard, because I think that he can have a legitimate role in the NBA as a sixth man. He could end up being one of the backup guards in the league. He's an older guard. He's a more experienced guard. I want to ask you about his evaluation specifically because it seems how it's been for years and years that NBA teams do not love drafting guards like senior level guards or like really experienced guards in the second round. They'd rather find those guys in the undrafted free agent market. Yet for whatever reason, Andrew Nemhard is getting buzzed, not just back where I have him or even where you have him. You have him 47th on your board. He's getting buzzed like early second round, even as far high up as the late first round. I'm trying to figure out why. Because I'm not saying he's a bad player, right? Like, I, I had to shoehorn him into my rankings because some guys just didn't end up staying in the draft. So that's how he got into the back end of my board. But if if, if my board would have ended up staying the way that it was just because he wasn't inside my top six, it doesn't mean I wouldn't have pegged him as, like, a priority undrafted for agent got to bring him, right? Like, he has value. He's going to be an NBA guard. I just didn't think that he was going to be one of these guys that I had to feel pressured to move on my board because all of a sudden he's like this – highly highly draftable guard i don't know where you currently sit on them parts evaluation but do, do you think he's deserving of a lot of that buzz by your grade like is it just because he's like six five and he has length to him like that's why he's like breaking the mold like what what are some of your thoughts on the the, the andrew Nembhard case yeah i can see it i can understand why someone is infatuated enough with him to, to take him in the late 20s um as i mentioned earlier once i get past 22 like 23 to 60 I can make a case, the for, I can make a case <laughs> for every single one of those guys. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that if front offices are attacking this in the same way that we are, which is there's not 30 first round caliber players in this draft class. So if you're picking in the later part of the twenties, what is it that you're really going for? Do you want that high upside swing? Somebody that can really deliver first round value eventually, or like you said, you just see Andrew Nemhart as being somebody who carves out an NBA career. If you're very secure in that type of evaluation, why not take him at 29 if you're the Memphis Grizzlies and need a backup point guard over the next couple of years? So um, again, I can understand it. My lack of trust for Nemhard and why he's a little bit lower for me 
is that I don't necessarily buy into the three-point shooting. Uh, I think that too many times we look at multi-year college players and see that their last year before they declared for the draft, they had a better three-point shooting percentage. And we say, oh, he's improved as a shooter. He's so much better now than he used. Like everything's a data point. I'm not convinced that there were mechanical tweaks or that he just was that much better of a shooter this year to make up for some of the challenges that he had a little bit more than our underclassmen. So, um, you know, I, I think that there's definitive second round value to saying, okay, secure guy who can operate out of the pick and roll, really good passer, comes in and competes earlier on in his career and is less of a project, but that's not somebody that I would prioritize within my top 30 or 35. And I agree with you in a lot of the same points. And I think that's why he's more of like a back end second guy for me at all. Like I, I have him in a different tier, for -hmm. example, as like an Iverson Molinar, right. Who's also kind of like in the back end second round of my grades, but I, I really do wonder who's going to have more impact in the NBA. And if it's more so that like people could just be sleeping on somebody like Molinar or if, Andrew Nembhard really is that much better of a prospect to where I feel much more secure about what his upside could be and therefore justifying not just giving him an upside tier grade, but also more of a higher slot on my big board. I just, I just been back and forth personally with just those questions about what, what his floor actually really does look like in the NBA. What, what truly is that baseline for him? But he he's been a fascinating conversation over the last few weeks. Sure. Well, I'll tell you one thing from my perspective, anybody outside of 22 in this class, their floor for me is they're not in the damn league, right? Like there's just, there's so many guys that could fit that bill. Uh, I think once you get past or into the later part of the twenties, like that's the reliable floor to say for most of these guys. And if you believe their floor is higher, you should probably take them in the twenties, which again, if you believe in that and Andrew Nemhart, that he's just a skilled enough player, he's going to figure it out then go for it. The guy that I am a little bit uh, higher on in that regard is Colin Gillespie out of Villanova. Oh, don't. Oh, I'm going to ask you about it. You want to just talk about him right now? He Let's was the only one guy to ask you. Let's talk about Colin Gillespie. Why do you have him at 51, coach? You have him, for, you, you have him well enough inside of your, your top 60. He's, he's got it. And every okay. year there's one guy that's got it that stands out to you. And you're like, I really like this guy. Uh, Gillespie is it I've got some intel around the program that at Villanova that really points to him being a great leader great intangibles guy he's won at every level he's been at Um, I like guards who can be more of that third option off the bench that are also really good shooters catch and shoot movement guys create their own from three I think he checks every single one of those boxes for the modern NBA game Uh, just I've learned not to bet against Villanova guys so I am giving Gillespie a little little bit of the bump in that regard. I have him as a, I think, 51st on my board, like borderline a top 50 grade, somebody that I would draft just so that I can make sure that he doesn't go to somebody else as an undrafted free agent and he gets to choose his own team. Um, But I'm I'm a big fan. So let's run through. Let's run through my tier five and tier six, the guys who I actually have in this list. And if I'm going too fast for you on the podcast, I promise while you're listening to this, I'll have the post on social media. You'll have everything in front of you, be able to physically look at as you're listening along. But tier five, I have Marjan Beauchamp, Nikola Jovic, Peyton Watson, Wendell Moore, Christian Brown, Ryan Rollins, Ishmael Kamagate, Jabari Walker, 
Christian Coloco, Alondis Williams, Trevor Keels, Musa Diabate, Isaiah Mobley, Walker Kessler, Jalen Williams, Jordan Hall, Michael Foster, Vince Williams Jr., John Butler, Ron Harper Jr., and Travion Williams. As, as one can tell, the tiers get a lot more crowded because these are outcomes that it's harder to envision these guys having the same kind of floor that you talked about. It's like surefire, like we think they're definitely going to stick in the league, so therefore the tiers get a little wider. Then we can move into tier six where I have this is what these are a few of the guys we're, we're going to talk about coach Kento Brown, Caleb Houston, John Montero, Josh Minot, Hugo Vassone, Iverson Molinar, JD Davison, and Dominic Barlow. It's, you know, what's really fascinating is that I might have some of these guys in higher rankings on my big board yet by tier classification and how we actually define the subtext behind our tiers, I think we're falling in very similar camps in terms of, man, the question marks are abundant. We are not clear on their evaluations. And just one more time for the audience, tier five, it's like a seventh through ninth man projection. Tier six is like a 10th through 11th man projection. So let's, let's have a little tier five slash six conversation. Let's talk about a few guys towards the back end of our respective boards before we part ways here on this podcast. So a few names that really jumped out at me besides Colin Gillespie that we just jumped on. You have Caleb Houston at 52 on your board, Kendall Brown at 54 on your board, Patrick Baldwin at 57. Holy smokes, how, how far the mighty have fallen by preseason rankings. Those, you, you can touch on anybody else in this part of the podcast as well, but like those are the three names, Coach, that really stuck out to me as you have them in the background of your board. I have them as like tier five slash six guys, and I'm not really projecting them nearly as high as I once would have. What are some of the questions that you have about these guys and, and why did they fall for you? Because I'm assuming that some of those answers are probably the same reasons why I rocketed them down on the boards. There's just a lack of uncert of certainty around any of those guys. Um, you know, Caleb Houston, he shot it, but he shot it in a very streaky fashion. It was an up and down roller coaster of a season to get him to 35% from three. I think that he has to be a shooting specialist if he is going to make it in the NBA. I don't trust his athleticism. I, I don't love the, the playmaking ability. I know a lot of people look at him as a solid secondary playmaker. I think he's just pretty mundane in those regards. Um, so some risk involved, which drops him down the board. And the same thing with Patrick Baldwin Jr., right? Like a, a lot of risk coming off of the last 18 months of what he's shown on a basketball court. While you love guys that are shooting specialists and come in and, and play that role, um, it's not a high reward necessarily for the risk that you would have to take to draft him in the top 35, 40, when I feel like there are going to be some guys that I can count on or, or would rather have on a basketball court. So that's why they can tend to be outside the top 40 and they fall a little bit further based on the amount of risk that goes with it. Kendall Brown's an interesting one. Um, I had him at the later part of the first round. I had him in like the 20s, the late 20s. Yeah, we talked for, about him in, in private messages and we talked yeah. about the fall of Kendall Brown. So just hit yeah. home for my audience. Why did he fall that far on the board? Uh, two things for me. One is functional athleticism. I wasn't overly impressed with a guy whose main appeal is how athletic he is on the defensive end. I just, I didn't think he played athletic enough on either end of the floor and that, that bothered me. Uh, two is you're betting on a person. 
you know, at the end of the day, and this is one of the, the rules that I have with drafting, like you're handing these kids a crap ton of money yeah, and you bank, you're banking on them developing and turning into professionals. Uh, you have to feel really comfortable with the person that you're doing that to, not just that they'll handle that responsibly, but that they'll continue to get better, that it's an investment in who they will be a couple of years from now. And from what I've seen or heard or gathered a lot about Kendall Brown, I don't have enough confidence in kind of where he's at mentally to make that type of, of claim. Um, that's, that's not too much of an Intel-based like peek behind the curtain as much as it is. I felt like he was floating around out there for you a You can see time. it on the film. I don't think that's any Intel-based propaganda yeah. whatsoever. You can he, literally see it on the film. He lacks confidence as a jump shooter. I didn't think he wanted the ball in his hands by any means. As soon as he got it, he was hot potatoing, trying to get it out. Like, if I'm making an investment in somebody, I don't want to have to play psychologist through that process as well. So um, just one of those reasons I'm out on, on Kendall Brown a little bit more. Uh, again, I understand the upside. I understand how he can become a lot of really good things as a defender, how, you know, there is some playmaking feel with the ball in his hands. But uh, personally, I don't want a guy who's more of a he don't want it type of addition onto the roster. So we went through the tiers for all 60 of the prospects on my big board. I think discrepancies that I can see plain as day between us is you have Colin Gillespie on your board. I simply do not have him on my top 60, but by rankings difference between two players who we do have on our boards, I think Patrick Baldwin is probably the starkest difference where I would still take him in the later portion of the first round. You have him at that back end, like we talked about at 57 between just Wrapping up the podcast, like I said, as our 2022 love letter, not talking about the tiers, but our big board, since we both have each other's big boards in front of us, is there anything that sticks out to you in terms of a difference between our boards that you're like, Nate, let's just have one more word about something like this really quick. Anything that sticks out at all? I think it's just when you get into the second round, we are all throwing darts at the dartboard with guys that we just simply believe in whether that's from stylistic tendencies, Intel that we have just blind belief that somebody's going to get better at something that they're not currently good at. All of these prospects in the later part of the draft have a flaw to their game. That's why they're not first round selections and different people see in different ways what is it that's going to be fixable? What is it that's going to turn into a, a strength or, or a non-negative that would return first round value on these guys? Like for me, I can't explain why. I believe Travion Williams out of Purdue is going to be able to shoot the three. Like I like his form. I, I just, I see a progression there that gets me to buy into that. I'm basing that just on my own evaluation and how I feel. There's not a ton of data behind the scenes of, oh, he's shooting 60% in his workouts. This yeah. is like, no, I just, I end up believing in that. And that if he adds that to his game, he ends up being a really, really good player. That's why I have him ahead of EJ Liddell on my overall big board. So, you know, there are, it's a preference game. And, and yeah. I, don't, I don't sit here and poo-poo where anybody has anybody else on their second round boards. I'll certainly go back and forth with people about, hey, why is he in your top 30? Why do you have a first round grade on somebody like him? But it's a matter of preference once you get later on in this draft. And more importantly, finding guys on that undrafted free agency uh, mantle to go to bring in to compete and help your team, because there are a lot of good players that get found there. That's why we try to go as deep as we do and go up to the top 150. 
Well, Coach, it was a pleasure to have you on. Notice I gave the audience a few rankings off your board. We didn't go through your whole top 60. We, if you want to see Coach's top 60, you got to go over to the Box and One Substack. He has breakdowns of his 150 rankings, but he really gets into the meat and potatoes once you get in that 60 and on range. He has written breakdowns of where he's going, his reasoning, and I think that's why I love this podcast the most and why this has been one of my favorite shows to do this year was because we really got into the whys of, of, of why we're doing our rankings, why we're doing our tiers, what actually goes behind the thinking to all of that. And I think in, in discussing some of these player evaluations, we didn't just give scouting reports on this podcast. We really went heavy into what actually goes into making those decisions. So this was an absolute blast, a pleasure, everything I knew it was going to be. Thank you again, Coach, for, for spending some time with me and coming on as we get closer to the draft. Just do everything you need to do. Plug everything that you're doing. Make sure that my audience follows all of your work, not is just watching one or two videos on YouTube. No, I appreciate that. Yeah, YouTube, we have uh, a couple other projects coming out between now and the draft, but our, um, our major work was the final big board, 18,000 words, 70 scouting report videos. You can spend 800 minutes watching all of those videos. So a lot of time. That went into everything. You and freaking Sam Bassini, man. You guys are grinders. Holy smokes. Uh, you can find all of that stuff at theboxin1.substack.com. Follow us on Twitter at theboxin1 underscore or find me on draft night watching the No Ceilings show. So really, really excited for, for a ton of that. Well, means a lot to hear you say that, Coach. That is a very kind plug for us in No Ceilings because, yes, we just spent all of yesterday planning out what the hell we're going to do for a draft show. I promise it's going to be exciting. Tune in to No Ceilings TV Thursday, June 23rd, 7.30 p.m. We're kicking it off, the No Ceilings NBA Draft Show, sponsored and presented by NBA Top Shot. We're, trust me, you're going to have a lot of fun watching that show. But for everything else we're doing leading up to that, no ceilings NBA.com, no ceilings NBA on Twitter. You know where to find us by this point. We're still pumping up content. I promise we still have some cool things in the works. And follow me on Twitter at Draft Deeper if you aren't already and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube. But in the meantime, thank you everyone out there for listening to this podcast, for the support that you've shown over the course of this year. It really means a lot to me. And I can't wait to keep pumping out some more podcasts for you guys as we lead into the NBA draft and obviously well beyond the NBA draft. So thank you all again for taking the time to listen. And I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your week.